The Culture Guy Podcast. With your host, Christian, also known as The Culture Guy. Everybody, this is a new episode of The Culture Guy, and today we have an amazing guest from the United Kingdom. Actually, when I say from the United Kingdom, that's just where he was born and where he currently resides. But throughout his career, Russell Harlow has been around the globe multiple times. Russell is the senior learning consultant and the director of global resourcing, that's a mouthful, at a company called TMA World. Now, those of you who worked with us with the Culture Mastery in a training or consulting or coaching capacity in the past, you know that we use several tools, assessment and cultural personality tools, to help our clients develop the cultural competence and the global savvy that they need. And one of these tools is the Country Navigator. And Country Navigator is a tool that was developed by TMA World, the company that Russell um, helped start or helped develop. He's one of the masterminds behind this tool. And I'm happy to have had the opportunity to bring him on as a guest for the Culture Guy podcast because, quite frankly, we love Country Navigator and so do our clients. So, well, I thought it would be a great idea to, to have Russell on the program. He has worked um, in Europe and Asia, uh, I think predominantly in Asia. I think that that would be an expertise that many of us Westerners are often sorely lacking and that's where Russell is is the guy <laughs> is the guy you want to have on your side he has worked with clients like Nokia British Airways uh, Hewlett Packard uh, Santander Bank uh, the, the big dogs right so when when he speaks from experience from his work experience it's actually the one with global companies that really really have a story to tell about what cultural competence is like so Russell Welcome, Russell Harlow. Where am I catching you today? Hi, Christian. Uh, yes, I'm sitting in my home at the office uh, just north of London in the UK. And you told me earlier you're a North London boy, born and raised and educated. What makes you the global person that you are today if you're such a North London boy? <laughs> um, well, it all changed for me, I guess, just after I left university because my first job after university was a teacher in a Japanese school and I was there for four years. It was actually in the UK and uh, that got me very interested in that particular culture and other cultures because the job that I was doing was a learning experience on a kind of hourly basis and then having completed that job uh, I then took on another role which uh, sent me to Japan for uh, an expatriate assignment for a few years and that's where the global journey began and, mm, okay. uh, 30, 33, year, 33 years later I'm still working in the field of global teams and cross-cultural intelligence. So, so you're the senior learning consultant for TMA World for those of the audience members who don't know who TMA World is in two sentences what does the company do and or how would you characterize TMA? 
uh, we're a UK-based um, uh, developmental consultancy, and we specialize in helping our clients to manage the, I guess, the human challenges of, of, of global working. All right, that, that's well put. And for those of you who don't know, the company Team A World has a spin-off company called Country Navigator. Those of you who worked with us before or who are frequent visitors to our website may have come across it. It's the tool that we use for a lot of our training and coaching programs. And Russell is, I think you're one of the four founding members or the four original members of TMA, correct? Yeah, there were five of us at the beginning. The, the, the two founders, as it were, of the company, uh, a British guy and a Dutch guy, uh, are still running the business. Uh, but in the early years, there were five of us uh, moving the company along from its uh, you know, original starting point through to the early stages of, of what, we, uh, you know, what we built. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there, were, there were, were five of us around for quite a long time at the beginning. All right. So if, if you ever check out countrynavigator.com, which I hope you will, um, check out their blog section. We, we cross-pollinate. You'll find a little bit of my work on their blog, as you will find Country Navigator blog work on our website. So we're friends, right? We're transatlantic friends. And you'll find Russell Harlow's work there as well. I would highly encourage you to read that. Learn from the man who's been around the globe. So you, you worked and lived in Japan for quite a long time. What was that like for you coming from uh, from Great Britain with um, from going from one insular culture to another, if I may say so? How, how was that experience for you? <laughs> um, well, I, I guess my experience was maybe slightly different from many other people who go to work in Japan for the first time because of my uh, my first job after university, those four years at the Japanese school in the UK. I developed a, a sense and some kind of affinity with the culture, teaching kids every day and meeting the parents and learning something about, you know, the, the, the mindset. So when I was asked to go and, and help set up this business in Japan, uh, my, my early stages were probably different from many other non-Japanese expats who are, who are going there, of course, who's, who's perhaps uh, the culture shock is greater. But having said that, even though I had some friends in Japan, I was made to feel very welcome in the early stages. It was still a very, very different world from what I'd been used to. And mm -hmm. uh, that was on all, on all levels, uh, linguistically, culturally, socially. Uh, so it was a, an, an immensely powerful learning experience. Uh, I was on my own, my wife was still in the UK. So just managing things like finding a flat and getting around and communicating, they were, they were regular challenges. But uh, they, they've, they've helped me enormously, and I, I remember those times vividly. What were some of the biggest challenges? I mean, you said linguistically, I would assume that learning Japanese as a, as a Westerner, as a, um, what, what, what's the derogatory term the Japanese use for Westerners, ganji or? Yeah, the, the, the derogatory term is gaijin. Gaijin, um, gaijin, yeah. Yeah, um, so, and I, I, I felt very much when I was there, because this is some time ago now, when I was in Tokyo, uh, even though Tokyo was the most international city in Japan during, you know, during the 80s, uh, there weren't that many foreigners compared mm -hmm. to now. Mm -hmm. And so I did feel a bit of an outsider, even though I'd had some induction into the culture because of my previous job. Um, so there were some, some regular challenges. You know, I would, get on a, I would get on a crowded train and I would be the only uh, non-Japanese person in the carriage and you were mm -hmm. conscious of people staring at you mm -hmm. um 
little children would come up and just want to look at you. You know, I was, mm. I was blonder, less gray in those days. I was blonder uh, and, and, and clearly stuck out. And right. uh, that's one of the things in the Japanese culture that you know, they tend not to stick out. In fact, they're, they're taught not to stick out and be so different from each other. Uh, How traditionally- dare you look different? <laughs> yeah, I should have, I should have applied the makeup and dyed my hair or something. But, uh, so there were there were some those kind of obvious you know, visible differences and, and, and challenges you just have to get get used to. Um, and there were some ones that were more, you know, more sort of subtle, more 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 indirect. Because mm-hmm. learning learning the Japanese language and being able to speak it well for a foreigner is very very difficult. Um, and the reason for that is. If you can't read and write Japanese, you are very uh, limited in, mm-hmm. in what you can actually do. And that was the case with me. So when I was doing business in Japan, it was always in English because I never learned to read or write Japanese. Um, I had conversational Japanese, which helped me on a social kind of basis, getting around and ordering things in restaurants and answering the telephone. But uh, because I'd never studied it, um, I, I couldn't read a Japanese newspaper and I certainly could not do business in Japanese. And how long did it take for you to adapt to the language, learn it? Well, in the end, I didn't, I didn't adapt because my, my daily work when I was living in Japan was I was training Japanese executives. The company I worked for in those days was a, a communication skills training company. And we were spending every day training Japanese executives in how to connect and be understood by their partners in the West. Mm. So there was no real motivational drive for me to carry on uh, with, with Japanese studies. And I was working six days a week and evenings um, because it was a set up business. Wow. So there wouldn't really have been time for me to dedicate and, and, and put the focus energy in that you'd need to, to, to study Japanese. So in fact, my social Japanese and my pronunciation got pretty good, but it never went further than that. Hmm. I understand, and I've had many conversations with Westerners who tried and or succeeded in living and working in Japan, yet the language remained the the biggest hurdle, the the hardest obstacle to overcome. And I think what what makes it so difficult is is not only the script, um, but also the the different levels of formality and and how it not only changes from, uh, you don't change just the personal pronoun, it changes the entire uh, sentence structure and, and vocabulary depending on the level of formality you use, correct? That, that's right. That's right. Those, those, those levels in the language business, we refer to it as register. You know, the mm-hmm. levels of register, the levels of politeness and formality are very hard for non-Japanese to really grasp. Uh, well, what were some of the, the, the biggest, me- most memorable cultural fool moments you had in Japan? Wow. Let me... Uh, let me think of one from many. <laughs> um, I, guess, I guess the one that taught me the most about differences between cultures and being able to integrate effectively uh, was one that happened very early on in my assignment in Japan. So the background was that um, I'd been asked to go and help set up and develop this small business in Tokyo for my previous company. So I was coming from the UK head office, as it were, and uh, to work in this small subsidiary in Tokyo. Uh, I was in charge of a small team of sales admin people, all of whom were Japanese. When I arrived, 
um, I was very keen to put my own cultural understanding of the Japanese into practice. So in the early stages, I gave lots of context about the work. I was very clear to them about their roles and responsibilities and, and the need for teamwork, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that was all fine. But then one particular evening, uh, which sticks in my memory, I remember this evening as if it were yesterday, but in fact, it was 26 years ago. <laughs> uh, we, we, uh, this was three months into my assignment, okay, and the team, we decided to go for a team drink and dinner uh, one Friday evening, and unexpectedly during that evening, the senior uh, admin lady in the team came up to me and told me that she wanted to ask me something important. Go ahead, of course, I said, and she hesitated for a moment, and then she said, well, on behalf of the team, I wanted to ask, why are you really here? Oh. <laughs> and by, by, by here, she didn't mean my club. <laughs> she, she meant here in, here in Tokyo in this job role. Wow. I, I, I remember feeling very confused. So I said to her, can you, can you explain, explain a bit more? And she went on to say that her and, the, and her team colleagues couldn't really connect with me easily. And... A few of them even found it difficult to trust me. Mm. Well, well, you can imagine, Christian, I was, I was shocked and not a little disappointed because um, I thought I'd been you know, pretty clear and had, had fitted in very well. Uh, but then it got even worse. Then came the killer punch. She said, and we think it's because, Russell, you are too Japanese. What? And there was an awkward, silent moment. And she explained, she said, I think it's because you are too indirect in your communication. You're being too harmonious. And that's not what we expected. And that's not what we need. Uh, we expected and we need you to be the more explicit communicator. You've got the connections with HUD office. You know, you've got to drive this team uh, rather than trying to fit in. Um, and well, you can imagine, I was, I was really you know, quite speechless. Yeah, they, they, they pulled the rug out uh, underneath your feet, basically. Yeah, and I didn't really know how to, how, how to respond. But, but I do remember what I thought. Mm -hmm. And my, my instinctive thought when she said that was, why are you telling me now? I've been mm -hmm. here three months. I mm -hmm. could have done something about it. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, then, of course, the realization kicks in. You remind yourself, you have that mindful moment, and you say, oh, Russell, come on. The reason she hasn't said anything to you is because she's Japanese. Mm -hmm. And in that culture, giving critical feedback to your seniors is not easy, Japanese to Japanese. But to do it to a, a foreigner, to do it to me in English, would have been a big step. So they'd have been thinking about it for some time. So... <laughs> it, it, guess, it, it probably took them weeks to define who of, of the group would be best suited to approach you with this. Uh, no, that, that would have been an easy decision. Oh, okay. uh, they, would, they, would, they would have chosen the best English speaker. Ah, there we go. So nothing to do with the fact that she was the senior person. It's the fact that she had the best English. Okay. Because they, they, would, want, they would fear being misunderstood at, at a very critical time. And um, you asked me at the beginning, you know, sort of, you know, what, what you know, what are the, the, the moments that you've had and perhaps the lessons that you've learned? And for me, and even now when I'm doing my cross-cultural uh, training, 
Uh, I remember that. Um, the main lesson I learned from that was that on these cross-cultural journeys that we all have, and we, and we try to have a positive impact, we must remember it's adapt, not adopt. Oh, yes. And that's, that's where I went wrong, because I thought, use all your knowledge, use all your cultural understanding of the Japanese, and you'll fit in perfectly. But it's not about fitting in, it's about being yourself, but being able to work with others. And mm -hmm. uh, I, <laughs> I got that horribly wrong and then I changed I changed after that so that was a real a real memorable moment and a learning moment for me and it, it, it's it's uh, I think the 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 desire to adopt that some of us may or may not have is, is rooted in this old myth of and this has been over quoted anyway but this when in Rome then act as the Romans do the, this is a, it's most likely impossible to be a Roman if you're not. It's most likely impossible to be Japanese if you're not. But it, your desire was so strong to fit in that you did everything possible within your toolbox to to adopt as many of Japanese behaviors as you were possible. And it had a detrimental effect to the trust building. That, that's a great story. How How did you... How did you then reestablish trust? Was the more being more assertive and more direct? Was that enough for your Japanese counterparts to see the real Russell? Yeah, it's a great question. I had to do it very gradually because my own personal style, my own personality, uh, wouldn't work if I just changed overnight. I I, I couldn't suddenly uh, change the way I communicated in meetings. I couldn't suddenly, you know, within a matter of days, just set up meetings differently. Uh, it had to be a gradual process, but mm. I was doing it more mindfully. I was really hearing things as I was saying them, and I was looking at the structures and the processes and the things I was putting into place and asking myself those questions. You know, is this, is this what they need and not what they like? And mm. uh, it, took, it took several weeks, I think, for me to really put something into practice, but it certainly worked. It certainly improved. And I started to learn a lot more about the differences and less thinking about, well, don't say that because this, you know, they, they wouldn't say that in Japan, mm -hmm. which is the kind of wrong way, wrong way to look at it, really. Um, so it, it's about authenticity, I guess. And uh, I certainly was more comfortable after she'd given me the feedback. Um, but it, yeah, it took, it took a few weeks, to be quite honest. Well, was there a second form of feedback later down the road where they acknowledged how the relationship at work had improved? Yes, we did. I, I, instituted, uh, I instigated that because I was really, really keen to see if, if they had felt any difference, any change. So when it came to review time of the work, when it came to sort of feedback, uh, I set up a, 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 an actual um, uh, opportunity uh, for them to talk with me uh, mm -hmm. about how things had, uh, had improved and, and moved on. So yes, they, they had a, an opportunity to, to give feedback and uh, that was great um, because I could see in, in their own motivation, the work that they were doing, they themselves were being more comfortable around me uh, rather than just, you know, sort of perhaps agreeing to what I was saying or whatever. There was a lot more uh, sort of genuine commitment and you know they they could be themselves as well so yeah mm. I, I set that up to to get the feedback and it worked now what would you recommend to anyone out there embarking on a similar journey whether it be to japan or any other country that is foreign to them 
Um, how do you find that right balance? How do you strike that balance between being authentically you and yourself with your um, default behavioral patterns and um, the other pendulum swing uh, adopting and less, uh, rather than adapting? But, but how, how do you strike the balance between remaining true to yourself and still adapting to your new environment? Well, I guess it's a number of things. One of the things that we talk about at TMA World is a balance between four areas that make up what we call CEQ, your level of cultural intelligence. Mm -hmm. and those four areas are your attitude, your awareness, knowledge, and skills. And there's a lot of cross-cultural research in the field that also mentions those four components. And for us, it's having all those four together. Um, so an open-minded attitude to difference has got to be the starting point. So anything that people can do to um, become more self-aware, uh, perhaps some kind of um, profiling or, or perhaps even things they've done for, for work uh, where they've got a stronger sense of how they like to do things. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly a, a, an open-minded attitude to difference and an awareness of oneself and an awareness of others. I think those two two key component parts um, have to be in the in the mix somewhere but that's not enough uh, you also need to have some concrete sort of data some knowledge some insights into how your the other culture likes to do things so using things like country navigator uh, and other online resources speaking to colleagues who perhaps have worked with the other culture or even are from that culture so live resources, uh, so you boost your, your knowledge, even though you haven't had much experience yet. And then the ultimate component part, I guess, is, is what you do with it, the output, the skills part, uh, how, you, how you communicate. And so you know, asking questions uh, about how things are done locally, inviting feedback on how you're doing, um, and just really being, uh, thinking about uh, how you're managing your, your, your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors while it's happening. And as, as you know, Christian, there's a lot of talk these days around developing leaders and global leadership uh, that's related to mindfulness. Mm. Uh, such a hot topic. And I think for those of us that have worked and, and, and coached you know, internationally for a long time, uh, it's, it's very much uh, about uh, being in that moment and hearing and seeing things as they're going on and being able to decode behaviors, uh, almost like you're the fly on the wall, you know, looking into the meeting. I think people who've got extensive cross-cultural experience and cross-culturally mature have that ability to kind of stand back and look in and while the conference call is going on. Yeah. Um, while the conference call is going on, actually seeing and hearing what's really going on. <laughs> Thank you for 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 putting that in 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 such a easy to follow structure because I think that that is where a lot of the cross cultural work is is dropped or or left because when people focus too much on um, differences and 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 developing strategies for overcoming differences i yes I use that phrase as well, but it's strategy is such a clinical term um there there is human human and emotional um, processes going on within each and every one of us. So it, it, the awareness and the willingness, if, if you don't have that, then 
you may as well rethink the assignment that is put in front of you. Um, after you returned from Japan or from other international assignments that you had throughout your career, did you notice how returning to your native culture of Great Britain, how that changed the way you show up in society, the way you show up at work? Definitely. Just after I came back from Japan, I noticed a distinct difference uh, about the things that I noticed. Because I'll give you one simple example. Um, I, I, my memory is not that clear, but let's say it was a month after I returned from being away from home for, for quite a long time. And the whole uh, customer service concept there's a fundamental difference between the way the Japanese handle customer service and most other countries that I've, I've lived in and worked in. Uh, because in Japan, um, they don't say the customer is king like we do in some other countries. Mm -hmm. They say customer is, customer is God. And the levels of customer service I experienced were incredibly high. Um, and when you're exposed to that, when you're in that environment, if you return to an environment that doesn't have the same level, and for sure the UK doesn't and didn't, uh, you notice things differently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would, I would notice the attitude and the service of, of waiters and waitresses in restaurants and cafes. Uh, at the supermarket checkout, I would notice and comment to my wife and say, did you see the way that she reacted? Uh, that would just never happen in Japan. Mm -hmm. and that, was really, that was really rude. Um, and I, I could hear myself saying it and thinking, you know, I've not been away that long, <laughs> but the difference was so uh, great that it's almost as if somebody's cleaned your lenses of your glasses and now you're starting to see things with a different focus. Um, mm. And, you know, when, culture is like, you know, the water that the fish swims in. You know, the fish doesn't see the water, right? So it's, you, you need that experience of being outside of your home culture, experience something else, and then you go back you start to, you know, you start to notice things and you start to uh, react and, and either reconnect or, you know, occasionally uh, disconnect. So mm. that was, that was a really quick reaction. I think over the years, um, I've, I've developed what I would say is, I think I've become a better communicator because of all my tra travels and my times outside of my home culture, particularly in listening. Because I think when you're in those situations, particularly if you're a presenter and a coach and trainer, uh, as we are, uh, you have to recognize that if you're not prepared to listen to what your group wants to do or listen to the other person uh, really attentively, you're going to miss out on so much. And I think when you've traveled a lot, you do quickly learn to listen more, but to listen in a different way. So mm -hmm. I, I think I've definitely developed definitely developed that ability and that's helped me in my coaching assignments uh, it certainly helped me in many of my relationships not just for not just for work but I think I've I've developed that sense um, as a result of, of of those journeys now I, I agree because I, I, I some of what you say reflects with me and resonates with me and I recognize myself to a certain degree in in that development however I think there is the 
uh, a bit of a caveat uh, to the, the global experience that people like you and I have developed over the years. Um, and, and that is that we at some point might think, um, I think the, the, the neo-Americanism that is being used, at least here in the United States, the term is woke. We think of ourselves as being woke and uh, meaning we are um, acutely aware of our surroundings and we do understand our own privilege or we are aware of other people's um, view of the world. And that can be that can be a trap. We can be trapped into thinking, oh, we got this. And and you shared with me um, earlier in a previous conversation that we had that you were caught in such a moment not too long ago when you worked with a group in Paris, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, that was also a very interesting learning moment for me. Um, this was only two months ago um, in December. Um, what the um, what the situation was that uh, uh, I'd uh, been asked by one of our clients to give a presentation to an international group of 60 new graduates who had just joined this global manufacturing company and they wanted me to talk to the group um, about managing unconscious bias mm -hmm. another very hot, hot topic as, as we all know these days and so um, on the way from the station to my hotel in Paris, I became aware that my taxi driver was not taking the most direct route. I mean, I knew exactly the route. I'd been, I've been to this place many times, but he wasn't going on the direct route. And in fact, I noticed he'd even gone down the same road and the same roundabout over the same roundabout twice. Hmm. And as, as it was happening, I could see my eyes looking up to the, uh, the fare meter, you know, where it's got the price that you're going to pay. And that's, that's steadily going up and up and up. And I could almost physically feel my emotions, my feelings about Parisian taxi drivers taking over. Because this, this just, first of all, I thought, oh, how typical. And then the next one was, oh, how unfair. You know, that's mm -hmm. just ridiculously unfair. Um, and I didn't say anything, didn't do anything. But when we got to my hotel, my destination, he turned off the engine and he asked me in French if I spoke French. And I answered him that I understood a little. So slowly, so that I could really follow, he explained to me that he hadn't taken the direct route due to the number of roads closed by the police, due to the yellow jersey demonstrators that were taken um. on, on the streets in Paris at that time. Mm -hmm. And then he apologized and said he wouldn't charge me any extra fare. No and way. When he, when he did that, I just felt awful. Um, mm. I, I, and I didn't sort of, I didn't say anything, but I just felt really bad. So I thought about it overnight and I decided to start my presentation with that story um, to the group the next morning. And remember, this presentation was about managing unconscious bias, right? And, <laughs> and the, the group were fascinated. And I had several questions during the early part of the presentation. Lots of good questions from them um, relating to this incident. So, for example, somebody said, Russell, why didn't you speak up at the time that you felt he was cheating you? And another person asked, and this was a really good one. She said, if you come back to Paris in three months time, Russell, 
do you think your bias will be changed? Mm-hmm. And it, it got me, you know, it really got me, got me thinking um, about, you know, how at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much you know about a subject, a culture, a person, a team. Um, it's, it's what you, you know, how you handle that moment. And um, if I can just share with you um, from my Japanese days, a proverb. Yeah. In, Japan, in Japan, there's a very well-known proverb, um, which if you say it in Japanese, it's Sarumo kikara ochiru. And what that is in English is even the monkeys fall from trees. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to remind us that you, know, you can be an expert in something, but you can also make mistakes. And that for me, you know, been in this business 33 years, and there I was sitting in the back of the taxi, unable to manage my bias uh, and, and my, my stereotype of Parisian taxi drivers. And so uh, I guess there, you know, the, the lesson from, from, from that experience was, you know, don't, don't assume that you've got it. Don't assume that you know, you know what's going on. Mm. Um, because each moment, you know, each person is an individual. Each moment is a moment in time and there's a context for it. So, you know, just don't, don't fall into that trap uh, of thinking you know it because cross-cultural learning, as you know, Christian, is a, is a, is a lifelong experience. Yeah, and le- learning in general is, I would argue, if we, if we don't learn, then we, our, our brains stop developing, I guess, and then we eventually die. Uh, what, what you just said was, that, uh, thank you for sharing that story, or both of these stories, quarter century apart, I believe, if I did the math right, and they, <laughs> and, and they just show that no matter how much knowledge and experience and wisdom we accumulate, there's always room for more. And exactly, exactly. And, 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 and you said that um, your assumption misled you. And, and this reminded me of a book that I often recommend to friends or people on this podcast now. It's a book by a gentleman called Don Miguel Ruiz, and it's called The Four Agreements. And it, they've kind of become the, the house rules in my home with, with our family. And, and the, the four agreements are always be impeccable with your word. So do, do what you say you were going to do. Don't, don't fool people with your word. Um, second, do not make assumptions. Um, thirdly, always do your best, which your best could be different on depending on the day and the form you're in if you're sick your best will look different than if you're wealthy uh, healthy excuse me so your best isn't always the same but do the best you can in the moment and fourth um don't make it about yourself so it's uh those four guidelines have helped me especially in in the process of, of dealing with the other quote unquote together with people who act and behave differently from from my preference and i think to not assume is a constant practice that is not something you can switch on or off you can switch the assumption button off i think our human nature is or our brains are wired in a way that we have to or our brain uses shortcuts to some to a previous experience in order to reference against and that can lead to an assumption that just doesn't hold up in reality but it's it's a constant practice and it never stops i totally agree russell yeah i like those four principles very much and i think again in the lessons that we've learned sometimes the lessons we learn from cross-cultural experiences can help us in so many other aspects of our lives 
So yeah. that's that's also comforting, but also a reminder uh, that uh, you know. Um, some, I think somebody once said, I can't remember who it was. It may have been T. S. Eliot, but I can't remember now. Somebody once said that the 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 aim of all exploring is to go back to the place you first started and to know that place for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And I think that sums it up beautifully that, you know, the, the, the journey metaphor, which is used so many times, and uh, this idea of, you know, you can, you, can, you can take on very long journeys, you can be away from your home culture, et cetera, et cetera. But when you come back, you know, be yourself and know the place that you're in. And use those lessons that you've learned on the journey, whether mm -hmm. that's with your family or whether it's from another learning experience or whether it's sitting on the business. Um, we can never underestimate the power of, of, of learning from being in a different situation. Well, that sums it up perfectly. Thank you, Russell, for taking the time for us today. Um, we will post the links to where people can find you online. Um, most, uh, most obvious is folks go to the Country Navigator website and yes, I think uh, I think uh, countrynavigator.com uh, would uh, be the, the the easiest route and the most helpful route if people are interested to see um, what TMA World does in this area. And if you're listening to this podcast on the Culture Mastery website, which I hope you are, you might be listening to it on iTunes or Stitcher. I won't disregard that either, but make sure you come back to the homepage, theculturemastery.com. On top, you'll see uh, tabs that will also lead you to Country Navigator. So um, it's not far away. And um, Russell, thank you very much for spending time with us. And I hope to meet you in person someday soon. Next time I'm in London, I will ring you up or let you know that I'm on my way. I know plenty of good places in North London, Christian. <laughs> Can't wait. Thanks, Russell. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Adapt. Do not adopt. That was a big one right there. Thanks, Russell. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I always pay close attention when those who have been traveling on the path that I embarked on, who have been traveling on that path longer than I have. And Russell is one of those people that I pay attention to because he, he's, he's blazing the trail for, for those of us who are on our journey to becoming more culturally competent. Adapt. Don't necessarily adopt. <laughs> As you could tell, that backfired. And another takeaway for me was you have to recognize that if you're not prepared to listen intently, you will miss out and you will have difficulties understanding the intricacies of the cultures you want to interact with successfully. So listen, observe, and suspend your judgment. Some of the key pillars of cultural intelligence. those of you who just occasionally tune in here at the culture guy podcast which i hope that's very few of you but you may have noticed there's new music we have had new music for the last couple of episodes what you're listening to is a song called rainbows the live version by the sepalot quartet a friend of mine and a very talented musician from munich germany so check him out also the intro track to the podcast is by sepalot um, details are in the show notes. 
make sure you check him out. Also, you may have come across some little videos that I have been producing and publishing online on the YouTube channel. You have seen them maybe on LinkedIn and on Facebook. Also post them on Twitter. They're called the Culture Moment. So the Culture Guy is doing the Culture Moment because his company is called the Culture Mastery. You get the drift, right? There's always some kind of the culture in the things that I do here. So the Culture Moment, three roughly three-minute video clips on something that just intrigues me on that day, something a little cultural intelligence nugget that I'm compelled to share with you. Find it on Facebook, on the Facebook pages. There's the Culture Guy Facebook page. There's also the Culture Mastery page. You'll find it on my LinkedIn profile. You'll find it on Twitter and on my YouTube channel. You can almost not see it. So go check it out, share it, comment. Um, give me feedback. What is it you like to hear? What, which one of the, the episodes or the, the culture moments did you like best? What did you not like? I'm ready to hear it. And also, if you feel like you're the person that needs to be on this podcast, let me know. Send me an email, direct message me on the socials, and we'll talk. We'll find out. All right, so Russell Harlow, TMA World and Country Navigator for this April 2019 episode. Hope to hear you guys again soon. Tune in for the next one. Interview's already done, so shouldn't be too long. The Culture Guy is out for now. Someone's gonna paint rainbows above you.